Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Women in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today is the European Union Ambassador to South Africa, Dr. Rina Kionka, who took up this position in October 2019. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you very much. Ambassador, Wikipedia describes you as an American-born Estonian diplomat. You joined the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1993, and some of your roles have included serving as Chief of Policy Planning in 1993, thereafter Political Director in 1995, and then serving as the Ambassador of Estonia and Germany between 2000 to 2004, thereafter joining the Council of European Union, where you headed up a unit dealing with transatlantic relations and the United Nations. Then you served on Javier Solana's Special Representative on Human Rights in the EU Council Secretariat. And in 2014, you joined Donald Tusk's cabinet as Chief Foreign Policy Advisor. Fantastic history, career thus far, and your career has really taken you across the globe in many respects. Can you share with us a few of the landmarks that have stood out for you so far? Uh, it sounds all very linear uh, when you when you read it out like that, um, and of course these things are are never quite quite the way they look in in hindsight. Um, I think that um, uh, maybe one one landmark was um, uh, has to do with how how I got into diplomacy in the in the first place, which was uh, a bit of an accident. Um, uh, while I was doing my university studies, um, I, I did an internship uh, with the United States State Department in Berlin and um, to find out really whether I wanted to be a diplomat uh, eventually, take the Foreign Service exam and so forth. Um, and I discovered after, after a summer uh, that I didn't uh, have any interest at all uh, in being a small cog in a gigantic machine. Um, and and there was a there was a kind of a female uh, aspect there as well because um, at that time this was the what was it the early 1980s and um, there weren't too many women diplomats uh, at the time uh, even even in that service uh, and the, all the the women that I uh, encountered um, were seemed to be uh, a bit unhappy and so I um, I didn't really see myself in that in that role and so uh, when I went back to university and continued my studies then um, then I, I set my sights on being an academic so um, but then the world changed so um, but we can get to that so there wasn't a master plan, which is always great when you look back in hindsight and see all of these these connections. No, absolutely no no master plan. Um, uh, you know, history has a way of um, making itself felt uh, as as one goes through one's career uh, as well. And um, I think that's really one of the one of the the main um, p- pieces of ad- advice or or, or um, that I would give. Uh, uh, young women or young men, for that matter, um, today is to be um, to prepare yourself, but be, re- be ready to um, to to seize the moment uh, if that moment comes. So, having more of an open-minded approach and 
being receptive to opportunities when those windows arise that are not necessarily in the, the linear fashion as, as one would love to have, but um, taking advantage of, of the moment. Looking at your role now in South Africa, what would you consider are some of the greatest challenges to the position? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I've been here for all of um, uh, two months, uh, so it's I'm still I'm still learning what the what the major challenges are. But one I would say is um, uh, getting getting access um, uh, and uh, getting people really to listen um, and uh, to to work together um, on on uh, some issues that we we could easily um, advance working together but um, it's it's a it's an issue that um, I've heard from from my colleagues from other colleagues um, in in embassies and and other services as well this is a big country with lots of challenges and um, it's a very complex multi-layered um, sort of situation, uh, a lot of domestic challenges, and sometimes it's hard to get, get attention. Um, so I think that's, that's the main challenge that I've, I've identified so far. And in effect, from the European Union stance, you're also representing a host of, of different nations under one 28, umbrella. 28, 28, yes, at, at last count anyway. <laughs> And increasingly, one of the things that I find in our, our global world, and we talk about how, how things change from, from era to era, is that we operate in a globally connected society. And given the fact that you're representing 28 nations from a European point of view, can you tell us about some of the significant collaborations or, or projects that you're working on with counterparts in Africa? Well, we we all um, uh, all of the European Union uh, ambassadors and, and and representations all over Africa and all over the world, in fact, we're are, are guided by the political um, guidelines that that we get from from Brussels, of course. Uh, and we have a new um, European Commission that just took office um, last week, um, and a new president of the European Council. So we have a new leadership in Brussels and new leaderships generally, <laughs> generally mean new political priorities as well. Um, there's a significant continuation, um, uh, continuity with the, with the priorities from before. But right now, the, um, this new leadership in Brussels is very much focused on digital, um, everything having to do with digital as, a, as an enabler. Uh, as well as um, sustainable development, so what we're calling the Green Deal, and so these are these are kind of overall um, priorities uh, which um, uh, guide all of us. Um, I think when you talk about the continent, though, then um, uh, Africa will play um, quite a significant role, I believe, in the next um, in this five-year legislative period that we have. Um, and I would note that um, there is um, there's a lot of interest in in Africa and seeing the continent um, as as a place of opportunity uh, and to uh, kind of shift the narrative from what it's been um, in the past. Um, I think it's quite significant that the very first foreign trip, that mean foreign meaning outside of the European Union, that the new um, uh, European Commission president Ursula von der Leyen is making is to Addis. Um, uh, to underline the importance that Africa as a continent 
places um, or finds itself in uh, in the European sort of political discourse. Um, it's a it's a huge step. It's never been done before. So that really echoes. You know, I think back to about a decade or so ago, it was Africa rising, and it's talking about this this prominence of of the continent lifting. But now it almost seems that Africa is actually on the horizon. It's no longer a case of, of rising. Um, but now it's a case of, of being able to take advantage of, of opportunities. Right. And, and the, whole, the whole narrative or the whole, the whole question here is um, working together with Africa as, as uh, in, a, in a relationship of partnership um, rather than seeing, um, seeing vast, vast swaths of Africa as... as um, you know, as a um, a place from which problems come, uh, we should be seeing it much more as as a place from which um, opportunities arise as well, and seizing those opportunities. And that's the whole idea. Um, there's a uh, an investment African investment plan that was um, uh, introduced during the last commission under President Juncker, and now this is kind of um, the point of departure for the, for the new narrative on 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 Africa. So I have great hopes for this this coming five years. It sounds like those those gateways are going to be there. And apart from the work that you're mentioning from an EU point of view, we've also had the Africa Trade Free Agreement come into place this year. So when doors are open, I think that that allows easier access, both from an import as well as an export perspective, and for more collaboration and and cohesion with with activities and, and like-minded projects. Well, absolutely, and um, I, I I would be um, uh, I would be uh, amiss not to point <laughs> point out that twenty three percent of of exports. Um, uh, uh, from from this country, um, uh, go go to um, go to Europe. Uh, Europe is is South Africa's number one trade and investment partner by far. Um, uh, so we hear a lot about some other countries um, uh, in in prominent roles, but um, some seventy five percent of of trade um, and investment is is with the U- European Union. Important partner. Earlier. In the conversation, you mentioned that there were few diplomats in, uh, sorry, there were few female diplomats in the early 1980s, and that kind of had detracted you from pursuing a, a diplomatic path. But currently, there seems to be an increase in feminization of government services across the world and a strong emergence of female diplomats. You know, I look, for example, at at the ladies that I've profiled on on the radio station from a variety of different countries and and continents, which is encouraging, to say the least. In your opinion, why do you think that we have got this shift from uh, what was predominantly a male-dominated role towards greater greater women, greater female inclusivity? Mm -hmm. Um, I I maybe don't see the glass as being quite as half full as <laughs> as you do but um um it's true that there has been an increase um in my first um ambassadorial role 20 years ago in germany um i was one of five um uh, female ambassadors uh, currently in south africa about 20% of all ambassadors are are women um which is um you know it's a it, the trend is in the right direction um but uh, there's still some ways to go. Um, why it has changed or why it is changing, I see this as a, a kind of normal 
progression of human evolution, um, taking advantage of, you know, the other 50% um, of the population. But I think a lot has to do also with um, with the fact that uh, with each, um, with, with increasing numbers of women in leadership roles, um, uh, there's a, a kind of um, role model effect mm. uh, that's playing out here. Um, I, uh, for, for most of most of the positions I've held over the years, I've been the first woman in that position. So I'm the first first female EU ambassador here. I was the first uh, diplomatic advisor to a president uh, in the European Union. Um, I was the first female ambassador in Germany, and so on and so forth. So I'm, you know, there's a long list, but uh, there's a there's a certain powerful um, effect of um, um, young young women seeing um, seeing somebody that looks like them uh, in a certain role, um, and that helps break glass ceilings as well. I believe. So, having been the first in many of the positions you've occupied, post you being in those roles, have there been women that have come through the ranks and followed through behind Ab- you? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a uh, um, with in every instance, I would say. So um, that that's already you know um, uh, a trend uh, of, of of one data point that that shows me um, that that's the case uh, in the in the European Union's um, diplomatic service. Um, uh, there has been a concerted effort that's led by the the current Secretary General, whose name is Helga Schmidt, um, uh, of uh, in selection panels um, uh, having at least at least one woman on each um, uh, in each selection panel, and uh, it's. Uh, the evidence is ab- absolutely clear that there are more women who come through and who are kind of given the chance um, if there happens to be at least one woman in the selection panel. It's a no-brainer. And we have to have interventions like that in place. Otherwise, there wouldn't be the opportunity. As you've said, if there isn't a woman on that selection panel, then the chances of a woman coming into office is is diminished. Yes, and I've sat on many of these selection panels myself because, um, uh, uh, you know, you, you if if there are few women in the first place in the in the management, then um, those few women end up being on those selection panels very often because there aren't other <laughs> other yeah. women to to take that place. And I I have uh, on a number of occasions been the one advocating for. Um, uh, for uh, uh, the woman on the panel or the woman candidate, not because she's a woman, but because she's the best candidate. Um, and otherwise, that would not have happened. And it speaks to these human biases that we all have. Right. Uh, no matter you know how, how we'd, we'd like to distance ourselves from them, but sometimes they are inherent. And by having diversity on panels... It encourages diversity in in the hires and naturally in in the organizations. Right. I mean, we all come with our own baggage. Everybody comes with baggage, um, and 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 preconceived notions and cultural biases and so forth. Um, uh, the mo- most important thing is to recognize that and compensate. Yeah. Staying with female leadership, 
And in all of the examples that you, you've given, it really demonstrates from a role modeling point of view, from a, a mentoring point of view, that having women in leadership is, is important for the future of women, not just in terms of, of their day-to-day -day lives, but also in terms of, of possibilities from a career perspective. But yet we've still had very few female heads of state globally. In your opinion, what steps do you think need to be taken to help countries become more receptive and ready to have female heads of state? That's a really tough question. Um, well, I think change begins at home. Change begins with oneself. And um, I, I think we need to look at each each particular society and um, uh, for for what is what what the obstacles are. Um, I, w I would point out, I mean, I've talked a lot about the, the new European Commission, and it's not just because I'm doing my job here, but, um, but there's one um, noteworthy aspect as well that I would like to bring out, and that is that um, um, the, the new um, uh, Commission president, uh, who herself, of course, is a woman, Ursula von der Leyen, um, uh, had made it her, her goal to have gender parity within the College of Commissioners, which is the, the group of... Um, you know the 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 top leadership in the in the European Commission, and she almost almost succeeded. But she did also ask her new um, commissioners to um, comprise their um, their cabinets or their their um, their private offices of at least fifty percent women, and that has been accomplished, and that is huge. Um, also, from a from a European uh, European Union point of view, so um, I think one has to um, uh, you know put one's foot down and um, and show by example um, what can be done, and that and that there's nothing avant garde about doing it. And sometimes quotas are regarded as, as controversial. Oh, that's a really tricky question. <laughs> if you don't, and, and in my view, is if you don't have something in place, for instance, there was a, a, a time where you know people were talking about and we need to have 30% representation of, of women, but then that legitimizes 70% of roles towards men. So it's kind of like putting this cap and saying, well, when we hit 30% of, of female representation, we, we can stop, we're okay now. Uh, and that's why I, I, I'm an advocate of, of putting through a 50-50% to try to bring together this, this view where we've got equal representation. Yeah, well, I don't want to speak to the, the idea of quotas versus versus targets, but um, I, do, I do agree with the, with the principle that um, uh, if there is no expectation um, that uh, parity uh, should be the norm, then it's not going to happen. Um, uh, during the um, during the process of choosing the top top leadership in the EU, which is always a highly political process involving um, a balance of not only gender but also geographic um, uh, location in Europe or big versus small member states and so forth, then um, a number of the EU leaders spoke of and there were there were five 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 jobs to be filled. Uh, and a number of European leaders spoke of the need to um, have at least um, at least one from uh, one top leader from the eastern part of the continent, and at least two should be women. And what I would not have given to hear somebody say, 
um, at least one should be from Western Europe, and at least two of them should be men. You know, it de- it's a question of what we take as a point of departure, um, what what we take as a as the norm normal um, sort of situation, and uh, yeah, so that's that's um, something we still have to work on. I think is is uh, establishing this norm. Different countries handle this in very different ways. And something that I did that was in my previous job was um, on my Twitter account, I would take a, I'd take a photo every time we would have a summit with another country or a group of countries. And without comment, I would just entitle it Gender Scorecard and then count up the number of women um, behind the table on each side. And the results were were very different. Um, South Africa came out really well, had a very very good representation. But there were some countries who who would show up with not a single woman in the entire delegation. I I heard um, later about some of these tweets from some disgruntled officials. Uh, but you know it, the 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 point was just to factually point out that talking about women's empowerment at the same time as you have no women behind the table suggests a kind of disconnect. Absolutely. and there's, uh, But also the aspect when I think from a South African perspective, absolutely, we've got fantastic representation in the political sphere on 50-50. But when you start looking into the corporate sector, that picture changes dramatically. And unfortunately, that's the picture that we see across the, the world from a private sector point of view, where on average, I think at the most, it's, it's 20 to 25% female representation in senior management. Annually, there's a, a study which the Business Women's Association in South Africa conducts. And at last count, female CEOs represented on the JSC was, was less than 4%. Mm-hmm. So whilst we've made it from a political point of view, in the private sector, it is a it's a, it's a different case altogether. Yes, um, for sure. That the um, uh, well, this it's hard to legislate the the private sector without without going in the in the direction of um, of quotas for boards. But it must be the case that um, that those making the decisions are not reading the empirical evidence, which suggests strongly that um, having a more diverse leadership in in private companies also um, is economically smart um, because the evidence is absolutely clear on this one. Potentially this goes back to when you were talking about having female representation on panels, on selection committees. I don't know what happens from private sector in terms of what those biases potentially are on, and who's on those selection committees. You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today we're talking to the European Union Ambassador to South Africa, Dr. Rina Kionka. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. Kionka, this program is all about gender equality and I think it's important to highlight some statistics which should be a concern for for all of us. And one of the factors is that women and girls tend to fall prey to sexual offence more so than men. Over 90% of sexual offences are committed against women. And it's estimated that almost 30% of these crimes go unreported. 
In the last 10 years, 584,000 sexual offences were reported to the South African police services. Currently, there's the international campaign of 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, which runs every year from 25th of November through to the 10th of December. And undoubtedly, this is an important awareness campaign. But how do you think campaigns like this can start to lead towards more action and elements which can really help eliminate gender-based violence? I attended this week a very interesting uh, conference that was sponsored by JZ from from Germany and um, and UN Women. Two of the speakers, anyway, suggested that uh, gender-based violence in in this country is underreported by six times. Uh, in fact, that's shocking. Uh, it is shocking. It is shocking. Um, but the the more hopeful message that that I took away from this seminar was that it is possible uh, uh, the uh, empirical evidence shows that there is we know exactly what needs to be done who needs to be targeted in what way um, to to reduce or uh, with any luck actually eliminate gender-based violence the techniques are there the ways forward are there and it's just a matter of recognizing and taking taking action so i do believe that campaigns like the 16 days um, uh, are important in raising awareness so that policymakers actually um, uh, uh, bite the bullet and do what needs to be done, um, put the resources where it needs, where they need to be put, uh, in order to start some of these programs that are showing, um, in pilot form, are showing results. Another point that was made at this seminar by um, uh, one of the speakers um, was uh, that there is an organic link between uh, gender parity and gender empowerment and gender-based violence. From a positive point of view, is that if we've got greater parity and representation, it reduces a, a GPV? The social scientist in you is coming out, yes, absolutely. Um, because at the, the fundamental level, um, the question is uh, one of uh, entitlement, really, of um, uh, in a in a less gender parity kind of situation, uh, men tend to feel they have a right to do things that they and South Africa be doing. coming from a, a very patriarchal background as a as a heritage stream, um, that is something that that absolutely has to be undone. Right, but um, uh, you know, gender-based violence is is a global phenomenon, and certainly it's not unknown in in Europe. So um, I, I I don't want to point any fingers here. It's true that the 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 statistics here are appalling, and uh, I hold a lot of hope for the the ongoing campaign that that has been spurred by uh, the march uh, last year, by the summit, and now this uh, emergency gender action plan that President Ramaphosa has has launched. Um, uh, We know what can be done. We know what should be done. It just needs to be done. And within some of the the talks that were given and, and the speakers talking about intervention mechanisms, was there anything that stood out as as an innovation, as a as a newer technique? Um, possibly, uh, I don't know how new it is, um, but um, the idea of focusing on also on men and how boys also are are socialized as as they grow up. There was uh, a few years back a campaign run um, at UN level called He for She. Yes. 
um, which was focused on this as well. And and it's clear that um, the way children are raised um, uh, has has an effect on how they how they behave later, how they how they think about that that normalcy that we were talking about. What is normal? What is standard? Um, behavior uh, and acceptable behavior. So um, instead of focusing just on empowering girls, I think we also need to focus on and how boys think about uh, social relations, relations with uh, women, with girls, and so forth. And then we come back again to role models. It's such a, a cyclical way of, of looking at things and also really emphasizing the interlinkages, that everything is interconnected, that an action will always have a reaction and how you, you balance components together. Indeed, yes. Dr. Kionka, we're coming towards the end of the show now. And one question that I'd, I'd like to ask you about is your personal journey. So with some of the guests we've had on the show, they've, they've reached pinnacles of, of success in their respective fields of, of expertise. And one question that I always ask is about what have been some of the factors that have contributed to your success? Some people speak about hard work, others talk about perseverance. Uh, one guest spoke about the, the fear of failure. Um, so if you can share with us what you would consider to have been some of your key drivers. Oh, um, the I, I, hard work and perseverance certainly are, I would say, necessary, but but insufficient um, conditions. Um, I think you have to be lucky. I do also think that um, you um, uh, have to be uh, uh, given the chance, um, which uh, doesn't always doesn't always happen. I think, gosh, it's a it's a tough question. Um, I think also. Uh, you have to, um, uh, for my, in my case anyway, um, often when I had, when I ran up against obstacles or people who said, no, you can't do this or no, you can't do that, then I would just keep asking until I got a yes. And so that's partly perseverance, but it's also partly sort of keeping your eye on the ball and um, not letting yourself be um, buffeted uh, in one or another direction um, uh, by the naysayers. All really valuable points. Uh, that action of of persistency, of of focusing, irrespective of naysayers in your environment, to to make your target. Can you share with us some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? Um, gosh, um, maybe one thing I would point to is. Um, the, the importance of, of kind of an international upbringing. Um, I, I grew up uh, uh, I grew up in the United States, but um, uh, in an Estonian family uh, where um, where there was um, uh, always a very strong emphasis on what's going on outside uh, in in the in the global sort of arena, and um, I think that led me naturally toward um, toward the the field I'm in now. Um, I did at one point want to become a musician. Um, in fact, um, I'm a serious amateur trumpet player. Um, uh, but at one point, I understood that um, in order to uh, do that on a professional level, I would have to um, 
spend many, many hours in basement um, uh, practice rooms um, by myself, um, practicing scales and and you know the the opportunity cost of not not spending that time reading or or uh, outside meeting other people or doing other things. I think um, maybe that was it was a pivotal it was a moment of understanding that um, when you close one door. Um, or, or in order to open another door, you have to close some door. So you, the, the importance of deprioritization, meaning that uh, not everything is important. So that's I think that was an understanding that hit me sometime around when I was 16 or 17 years old. And who would you say have been some of the strong women in, in your life? Oh, my mother, yeah. I, for sure. My mother and my grandmother who, um, uh, who uh, lived with us when I was a child. Um, uh, my mother uh, is somebody who who uh, came um, uh, went to the United States as a as a refugee uh, and um, went to university uh, uh, saved up money first um, doing domestic work uh, and um, uh, then went to university uh, and studied with uh, her 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 textbooks on one side of the table and a dictionary on the other side to translate to translate yes. Um, so it's that kind of perseverance and um, stay with itness, yes, um, that I learned uh, very much from my mother. As far as professional role models, I wouldn't say that I have had any um, any women role models as I was coming up through. Which well, the fact, as you were saying, there weren't any. There weren't any. No, there weren't any. I mean, I had uh, a number of mentors um, who were men who 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 taught me. Um, uh, or from whom I learned, from whom I learned um, uh, a number of um, important qualities. Um, but that also stressed for me the importance of um, uh, serving as a role model, um, mentoring whenever whenever I could um, uh, younger women, um, and uh, really bringing them along. Um, uh, You're quite deliberate in your choice of term between learn vo- versus taught. And I think that's an issue that most women are struggling with, that they're observing, learning themselves as opposed to teaching. But what I've, I've noticed frequently with a lot of the guests is that they've almost at this point where they want to be giving back to younger women. So that's where you've got the teach and the mentorship Right, and um, I, I I made that deliberate deliberate choice of verb also because um, uh, I've heard so many times um, from from uh, great people who have who have served as mentors or role models for myself um, say um, when I've uh, um, managed to 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 reach some. Uh, shiny plateau um, that, uh, oh yes, I knew her when, or I taught her everything she knows. Um, uh, in fact, it's what a person learns and picks up from from observing those around uh, around her or him that is important. Completely concur with you. What would you say has been the best lesson you've learned in your career so far? I'm sure there's many, so if you can highlight <laughs> one. Um, I'd say that um, uh, it's important to 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 prepare yourself for for what you want to do, but be open to doing something else as it comes along. Um, especially in 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 today's world, um, uh, it's not like it used to be that you studied to be X and then you worked as X. 
uh, from the start to the end of your career. Um, things change. Uh, technology has brought about um, huge differences in the way we work and, and what we work on these days. Um, so it's important, to, I think, to get a, a, a good, solid education, but be flexible, be plastic in the way that um, uh, that you you take that um, that preparation and apply it around you. So I think you have to be able to. I think the best advice that I have um, received is to um, to be open to opportunities, to seize the day, um, and define what you yourself want and go for it. Great lessons. And lastly, as we close out our conversation today, could you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to ladies on the continent that are are listening to us? Well, how many hours do we have? (laughs) No. We can bring you back with pleasure. No, I think um, somebody once said that there's a a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Um, And so uh, I think the, um, uh, what I would say is um, look around you. There's certainly somebody uh, who could use some advice, a helping hand, um, or just a listening ear. Um, And um, it's very important to, um, to maintain and nurture networks like that. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was Madeleine Albright who'd who'd conveyed those words. And um, I think they are absolutely words of of wisdom to to aspire to and to to hold as a mantra that we lift women up. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to the European Union Ambassador to South Africa, Dr. Rina Kionka.